This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special history episode is the Naval History Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Eric Mills. How are you doing, Eric? Great, Ward. And you? I'm well. So we're here in Studio A in the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. And last Thursday, September 30th, we had the official grand opening of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. It was quite a gathering of high-ranking Navy and Marine Corps officers, dignitaries, former service secretaries, active duty Coast Guard Commandant was one of the keynotes. It was really an amazing, amazing gathering. And it was really awesome to get this conference center officially open. What a day it was. And the weather was perfect. The weather was like perfect. The, uh, the sea gods were shining on that The sea event. gods... Neptune and his lieutenants were shining yes, on us. They were. So it was a fantastic day. And uh, as regular listeners know, we've been using this studio for some time. Um, acoustically perfect, as people have come to expect. Unlike our COVID environment early shows where we were all over the place with audio quality. Pirate radio. Pirate radio. Uh, you know, tin can and a string. So we appreciate our Loyal and dedicated listeners sticking with us through those months, and we are now here permanently. And to that point, we actually have our guest with us in the studio, our good friend Trent Hone. So, Eric, let's go ahead and say hello to Trent, and, and what are we talking about today? Well, we're thrilled to have Trent here today. Um, he's come up with a, another wonderful article. It's the cover story in our October issue. Grab yours now if you haven't gotten it yet. Uh, last year, Trent wrote about uh, countering the kamikaze for us, and uh, in the current issue, he covers the uh, naval battles of Guadalcanal, and um, there were quite a few of them in a row, and he manages to get them all in this one article. And it's such a rich topic, of course, because as Samuel Elliott Morrison pointed out, you may search the seven seas in vain for an ocean graveyard with the bones of so many ships and sailors as that body of water between Guadalcanal, Savo, and Florida Islands which our Blue Jackets named Iron Bottom Sound. It was a hard-fought campaign for Guadalcanal in that late summer and autumn of 1942. And here to revive some of those memories for us is Trent Hone. Trent, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. And I got to say, it feels amazing to be in person. Uh, this is a lot of fun after everything that we've been through for the last 18 months or Absolutely. so. So thanks for having me up. You sound better in person. I feel better in person. <laughs> you look the same, though, we got to say. No, yeah, well, some things now. don't improve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, his third dimension is yeah. is, is his you yeah, know, sort of signature yeah, dimension. Yeah, so, yeah, you do look better. The third dimension is his good side. He was yeah. just two dimensions before. <laughs> he was. 
Anyway, um, the, the, this is a, a meaty topic, and I was really impressed with how you managed to get it all into a feature-length Naval History article. There's a lot in there for people to devour and uh, relearn or learn better than before. Why don't you start us off with the first of these series of battles and explain as you go how they relate to each other. Sure. Uh, thank you for the compliment about how I fit all this into the article. I, I tried to have it move quickly because one of the signatures of these fights, these battles off Guadalcanal, is they, they do move quickly. And um, a lot of captains and formation commanders were occasionally overwhelmed by the pace of them. And we can see that very much in this first one. The first one is Battle of Savo Island. Uh, early morning, 9 August 1942, Guadalcanal has been occupied just a few days before. And the Japanese have responded, and they've responded very aggressively. There have been aerial attacks over the past two days. They've subjected the, the fleet to a lot of alerts, a lot of alarms. Officers and sailors are tired. And then at night, um, the commander of the Japanese 8th Fleet, uh, Kenichi Mikawa, shows up and blasts uh, two different Allied cruiser groups in turn. You know, attacks the southern one, uh, shows up out of the gloom, out of the darkness, without any warning, dispatches uh, the Australian c cruiser Canberra, and then turns north and attacks uh, the U.S. cruiser group. Astoria, Quincy, and Vincennes, and dispatches all three of them uh, before withdrawing uh, without a great deal of damage being inflicted on any of the, the Japanese ships. And this indicates how important surprise is getting the drop on the other side in these kinds of battles because we think a lot about radar. Radar existed at the time. It's an important technology, but it has its limitations. Um, it's not terribly easy to use. Early radar displays are difficult to interpret. They're not the, at least the ones in service at this time in that battle. We're not PPI displays, you know, not a top-down bird's eye view. They're more like an oscilloscope. Very difficult to make sense of whether or not there is a target out there or is it a cloud formation? You know, sometimes rain showed up on these radars or is it an island? And there's a lot of clutter. And so picket destroyers that were positioned outside the sound to provide early warning, did not detect the approaching Japanese on radar, did not detect them visually. And uh, that, to a lot of respects, decides the outcome of the engagement. Yeah, you always hear about the fog of war, and it seems like it's never truer than if it's a night battle and a night naval battle. And Savo Island is such an um, epitome example of that. It is. It's a. It's an excellent example of that. You know, the Japanese show up. They know what they're doing. They have a fairly sound plan. You know, they're going to steam in a line and use uh, torpedoes and then open fire with guns, uh, and quickly overwhelm their opponents. And and it works. And they do. And a lot of the Allied ships are are not at a similar level of alertness. You know, it, it takes them time to get there. It takes them time to understand what's going on. Uh, are we being fired at by a friendly ship that has somehow misidentified us? A uh, lot of uncertainty, and by the time they really start to make sense of things, shells are already either straddling or hitting, fires are breaking out, uh, and the Japanese secured an initial advantage that's almost impossible to overcome. Lessons learned becomes the words that spring to mind after this. Where did the Navy go from here? Pick well, up the pieces. That is such an excellent question because I think it's important to understand, particularly the U.S. Navy's approach in these battles, to, to look at what it was thinking about with regard to night combat before the war. And what 
I think was really interesting about Savo is the battle disposition or or the disposition doesn't conform to some of the pre-war lessons. It's it's distributed. The Allied ships are trying to guard all the different entrances to the sound, so it becomes very difficult to coordinate and come together and fight cohesively. They fail to do it. So afterwards, what happens, uh, Rear Admiral Norman Scott is placed in command of one of the South Pacific's uh, surface action groups, and he develops a plan that emphasizes concentration, right? So we're going to avoid some of the problems of Savo Island. How are we going to do that? We're going to have a very tight task group. We're going to put destroyers at the van and at the rear, and we're going to put the cruisers in the center, and we're going to stick in this line until we can find the Japanese. Uh, if they surprise us, we're going to be able to open fire on either flank very quickly. And they practice that, and they develop that routine. And so you see this, this sort of shift uh, very quickly away from uh, some of the pre-war concepts, which were not quite as tight, not as distributed as at Savo Island, but uh, allowed for a little bit more flexibility in mixed cruiser destroyer formations at night. And instead, Scott says, nope, we're going to be in this tight line. We're going to fight together. It's going to prevent friendly fire, and we're going to do our best to win. So to, to go backwards, so from Pearl Harbor until these five battles, it's just shy of a year, 11 months. Um, so what happened in terms of our fighting capability from Pearl Harbor until this watershed battle? We showed up not as prepared and not as capable as the Japanese Navy in general. I think that's a, I think that's a fair conclusion in some respects because there haven't been the kinds of fights uh, that would hone the the – the fleet in the way to, to prepare them. Uh, you do have some fights, uh, the Asiatic fleet, uh, Balak Bapan, we were talking about that if, uh, before the podcast started. Uh, but, you know, that's old destroyers in the Asiatic fleet. That's not, you know, the Pacific fleet. That's not these ships. Uh, they are practicing and they are training, but they're doing it based on pre-war conceptions of how things are going to play out. And the Japanese proved to be more practiced more effective and more efficient a lot of these things than I think most people were assuming. So the we had Coral Sea, we had Midway, and some other big ones that were basically carrier strike groups coming at each other, or task forces. It was an air war primarily. This is a surface war. Yes. So that's the difference kind of yeah, in terms it's of different. Right. The so they're Although there were considerations, like, for example, uh, Admiral King asks, well, you know, why didn't we send out a destroyer attack group at Coral Sea? He uh, criticizes Fletcher for that, uh, Fletcher being the commander of the carrier task forces right. at, uh, at Coral Sea. And there wasn't any opportunity for something similar at Midway, although the Japanese tried to provoke one. Uh, so there isn't uh, Yeah, I mean, that example. question, that question assumes planning. Right. And some of these things were accidental. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. Midway was accidental at, at some level, certainly in, on the part of the Japanese. Um, so, yeah, I think that some of it was happenstance, just where you were at any given time and who you stumbled upon. Um, so, um, you know, to in Fletcher's defense, uh, it's kind of like, well, OK, that would have been great had I known this battle was going to happen to the degree it did happen. Right. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm jumping all over the place here, but, <laughs> no, but I just are... wanted to get the chronology, you know, for the layman, uh, squared away because I think sometimes we just sort of descend on the story without any sense of what came before 
and Eric already asked what happened afterwards, but I just wanted to situate in the listener's mind what had happened before these series of battles. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. Um, and it's worth asking, okay, well, what did happen between Pearl Harbor between and, and these battles? And, and how did the, the U.S. Navy begin to think about these kinds of fights? And I think, in general, they felt like, well, you know, our pre-war practice for night combat is, is pretty good. We'll be ready when the time comes. And then Salvo Island proves, at least in that context, hey, we're not. There's a lot of things that we didn't do right. What can we learn from that? And part of the learning, I mean, besides maintaining a higher condition of readiness, is this plan that Scott takes into the Battle of Cape Esperance. The second battle, the mm-hmm. night battle of Guadalcanal. Why don't you tell us about that? So this is an interesting counterpoint to Savo Island because at Savo Island, Japanese surprised the Allies. Here at Cape Esperance, the Japanese are surprised. So Scott is steaming in his tight formation outside an entrance to, to Savo Sound. And a Japanese bombardment group is on its way. Uh, they're going to shell the airfield in concert with a, a transport group that is going to offload some reinforcements onto the island. And so they're operating in two formations. And that bombardment group runs smack into Scott's force. Essentially, Scott, without a whole lot of maneuvering or knowledge of exactly where the Japanese are, manages to cross their T. Unfortunately... His plans for sticking to this tight formation and preventing friendly fire by doing so don't work out because his line breaks. They, they reverse course before he's aware of the Japanese presence. And so his van destroyers are out of position because the, the cruisers turned at the same time that the destroyers start to turn. And some of the destroyers are coming up the engaged side of the cruisers to re- find their position in the van again. And, and one of them, Duncan sights the Japanese and thinks, well, this is an opportune moment for a torpedo attack. Let's go get them. Uh, and Duncan finds herself between the groups of ships and, and is hit by friendly fire. So the, the line didn't work out the way, that, uh, the way that Scott thought it would, but it does allow him to concentrate his cruiser gunfire. And he decimates the, well, essentially knocks out of the battle, the Japanese flagship, kills the Japanese admiral. And uh, sinks the second cruiser in line. The third one manages to evade, follows a different course, manages to uh, evade a similar fate, uh, and then engages with Scott's line later on. But it's a clear victory for the United States Navy. Nice turnaround from Savo Island. But again, it's just the second of five. This uh, hard-fought contest continues. Uh, It's followed up by the uh, first Battle of Guadalcanal, as they call it, even though it's the third night battle. Yes. And now, here I think it's important, sort of returning to Ward's point a little bit, to, to give some context. Right? So the, the Marines, and, and by this time, um, because Scott fights the Battle of Cape Esperance to a certain degree to ensure that reinforcements and an army regiment can arrive at Guadalcanal, reinforce the position there. So the Marines and the soldiers are defending the airfield, named for Henderson Field. Uh, after a Marine aviator who um, gave his life attacking the Japanese at Midway. And the Japanese are trying to recapture the airfield and through that means uh, obtain a a more or less unassailable position in the Seven Solomons. And they haven't been able to do it, but they continue to pour uh, reinforcements and resupply into the island. And so 
the challenge is how to prevent that effort. These these efforts were nicknamed by um, sailors and Marines the, the Tokyo Express, right? Because it's this express line. Just Japanese destroyers are regularly running troops and other supplies to the island. How to how to stop this? And it had been difficult uh, for Vice Admiral Robert Gormley, who was the initial commander of the South Pacific to uh, ensure that that happened. There was uh, some criticism that he wasn't being sufficiently aggressive, uh, wasn't using his surface forces effectively. It took time to form Scott's surface action group. And so Admiral Nimitz comes to the South Pacific, has a conference with Gormley in Numea, travels on to Guadalcanal to meet with uh, the commander of the Marines there, General Vandegrift, Nimitz is convinced that they can hold, that they can uh, maintain their position, prods Gormley to do more, uh, and then leaves. Now, not long after Cape Esperance, the Japanese send two battleships to bombard the airfield at Guadalcanal, and and they do. They they shell the airfield uh, for a long period of time. They destroy a lot of the planes, and so now there are a series of uh, crises you know, how are we going to obtain control of the waters around the island? This is the question that Nimitz is confronting. He's getting pressure from Washington. Guadalcanal is in the newspapers. They have to find a means of securing uh, victory here and ensuring that, that the Marines and the soldiers can maintain their position. And so Nimitz decides that he's going to relieve Gormley. Now, there's some evidence that Gormley was suffering from uh, toothache, uh, an abscess, and several other problems. He wasn't getting enough exercise. We know that for sure. So he's a competent individual, but just not the right time, not the right place for him. Nimitz decides to relieve him with Vice Admiral William F. Halsey. So Halsey's being sent to the South Pacific to take control of the carrier forces. Nimitz decides to have him take control of the South Pacific, the whole area. And he does. And this next battle, the first Battle of Guadalcanal, is another effort to prevent a similar Japanese bombardment. They are sending two battleships again. They're gonna bombard Henderson Field again. And how how do we stop that? That is the question that's on Halsey's mind. It's on his amphibious force commander, um, Kelly Turner's mind. And Turner has just, well, he's leaving Guadalcanal uh, with a transport group when he receives word that the Japanese are coming, that these battleships are on their way. And he sends his service forces uh, which are a conglomeration of one under uh, Rear Admiral Daniel Callahan and another under Scott, back into Iron Bottom Sound to stop this bombardment. And that's what sets this up. How does it turn out? <laughs> and how does it turn out? It is, uh, well, some of the participants describe it as the 4th of July in hell. It is a confused and chaotic melee. And... I believe that there's evidence to suggest that that is something that, that Callahan intentionally provoked. So he's got a real problem. He's got three large cruisers, two small cruisers, and eight destroyers. He doesn't have a very substantial force. He knows the Japanese have two battleships uh, and a screen to protect them. And so the challenge that he has is, okay, well, how, how can I disrupt that force and prevent the bombardment of Henderson Field? That's what has to happen because that's the key to the campaign. 
And um, one of the survivors of the action reported hearing him talking with uh, Captain Cassin Young, the uh, commanding officer of San Francisco, his flagship, and saying that, you know, well, we've got to do it. We've got to do it. And Cassin Young is saying, but that's suicide. So what was the plan? Well, Callahan didn't survive. Cassin Young didn't either. Uh, so their plan has to be reconstructed by events. And it seems like what Callahan was intent on doing was getting his cruisers as close to the Japanese battleships as he could. Naval War College analyses had shown that if you could bring three of those treaty cruisers into close range against a single Japanese battleship of this type, the Congo class, then, then you could overwhelm it with gunfire. You could win. Uh, whether or not you could do that sequentially, engage one and then engage the other and, and win, uh, the analyses didn't go quite that far. But there's reason to suggest that if that's what Callahan was saying to uh, Cassin Young, then, you know, why wouldn't Cassin Young be saying that's suicide, right? Let's bring three cruisers to, you know, five, four, 3,000 yards range uh, of a battleship. Well, we're not going to survive if we do that. But the way the battle works out, that seems to be what Callahan does. Uh, when radar reports the approaching Japanese formation, he steams toward it. There's criticism after the fact that Callahan didn't try to cross the T as Scott had done. But he doesn't maneuver as if that's in his intention. His intention appears to be to collide with the Japanese force. And then once he does, he orders his destroyers to take a northern course, both the van and the rear destroyers, which would take them through the Japanese formation. And then he turns his cruisers to port to open up their broadsides and to try to get them to close with the Japanese formation. Doesn't work. Um, Portland, the second cruiser in line, is hit by a torpedo. It shatters her stern and causes her to turn in circles. She, she cannot respond to helm anymore. And Helena, the next cruiser in line, gets lost in the chaotic nature of the battle. So there's a moment uh, where the Japanese flagship, yay, and uh, Callahan's flagship, San Francisco, are engaging each other from close range. At the same time, other Japanese ships are shooting at San Francisco. San Francisco manages, or perhaps it was Portland, manages to hit uh, Hie with a shell that damages her steering gear. So she's not going to be able to withdraw. At the same time, the U.S. destroyers are raking Hie's uh, bridge and upper works with their five-inch guns and even some of the semi-automatic weapons. They closed at very, very close range. Um, so the Japanese formation is thrown into chaos. Uh, the flagship loses its radio capabilities, and uh, so the bombardment is prevented. Uh, it costs Callahan his life. It costs uh, Cassidy Young his life. And uh, San Francisco barely survives. A large number of, of Callahan's destroyers, I forget the number, are, are sunk or horse to combat. Uh, cruiser Atlanta is lost. Juno, another light cruiser, is lost on the way back uh, to, uh, to Nuia or Espiritu Santo. And so Callahan's formation is basically decimated. They don't have much in the way of fighting capability after this battle is over, but the bombardment is prevented. That's just it. That's just it. Um Second Guadalcanal follows fairly quickly on the heels of the first, does it not? It does. It's it's two nights later, and so it's part of the same campaign. The the bombardment that the Japanese planned for Henderson Field was intended to cover or allow a relatively slow convoy to approach the island, and it's initially got eleven transports in it, and 
idea, right, is the Japanese cannot sustain or, or, or cannot get the kind of force on the island that they need, the number of troops and the amount of supplies and ammunition, just by these nocturnal runs. So they're going to put what they need on these transports and they're going to move more slowly to Guadalcanal. And the problem is if the airfield, if Henderson Field uh, is operational, then planes from it are going to attack the transports as they approach. So the idea was to knock out the airfield, allow the transports to approach, and then um, have enough forces on the island to overwhelm the American defenders. So second Guadalcanal is an attempt now to um, actually make that bombardment and make it make it work. Uh, in the intervening night, there was a bombardment by Japanese cruisers. Uh, there were no U.S. forces close enough to intervene and prevent it. But it, it doesn't destroy much in the way of uh, planes or material on, on the airfield. So now they're sending uh, the battleship that survived, uh, Kirishima, along with some cruisers to uh, the waters off Guadalcanal, and they're going to bombard the island again. At least that's the plan. Uh, now, in the intervening days, the, the transports have been attacked. Uh, Carrier Enterprise has closed close enough, even though she's damaged. Uh, to be able to bombard or uh, you know launch planes to attack uh, the Japanese convoy, and some of them are ferrying through through Henderson Field. But to prevent the bombardment, Halsey sends in effectively his last surface action group, which is based around Battleship Washington and South Dakota, uh, along with four destroyers, the four destroyers that happen to have the most fuel. So they haven't worked together. It's not a cohesive formation, and it's under the command of Rear Admiral Willis Lee. And Lee is in Washington. Washington is his flagship. He's worked Washington up to a very high state of readiness. And uh, essentially what happens is uh, Lee's ship wins the fight because uh, his destroyers engage with the Japanese screening formation and they mix it up. The destroyers are uh, either sunk or knocked out. South Dakota takes an unfortunate course she suffers a number of power failures, silhouettes herself against the burning destroyers. So the Japanese know she's there and they start shooting at her. Uh, and that exacerbates the problems that she's having. Can't pick up targets on radar, has real trouble acquiring targets visually. Uh, the Japanese battleship is shooting at her. Japanese cruisers are shooting at her. Her action report or damage report is really interesting to read you know, because you can see all these different hits and the damage that they caused. And Lee is a little uncertain what to do in this situation because uh, although uh, Washington has some sophisticated radars, the best surface search radar is that in front of her fire control tower. It's got a blind spot in the rear. South Dakota had been in the blind spot. And now his fire control team is attacking or is tracking uh, a large target. And he's not sure. Is that South Dakota? Are we about to shoot at a friendly? Or is that some Japanese ship? And while these questions are milling around in his head, while the fire control team is trying to convince him that they should open up, the sunset or the, the moon sets, it gets darker, and the Japanese turn on their searchlights to better illuminate South Dakota and, and get a get a accurate uh, fire control solution on her. And when those searchlights come on, Lee realizes what's going on because now he can see South Dakota's silhouette. Now he can see where the source of the searchlights are that agrees not exactly but closely with the, the fire control solution that his team has. And so he orders them to open fire. And they do. And it's difficult to make claims like this. I know that uh, there's 
you know, lots of places on the internet where you could argue about the most accurate, you know, battleship gunfire ever. And this is right up there because they, in a matter of minutes, reduce Kirishima to uh, uh, a crippled and sinking condition. The and Japanese should have left the lights off. <laughs> well, you could, yeah, that would have would have led to a different outcome. Sure. Uh, so that disrupts the Japanese formation. They try to come to grips with uh, Washington, uh, but they become concerned because after dispatching the Japanese battleship, Lee sets a course toward the approaching Japanese transports and causes them to slow down and reverse, reverse course for a little bit, which is important, uh, but often overlooked in some of the accounts of the battle because that means that it, you know, it's essentially sunlight by the time or sunrise by the time they show up. And the only combatant ship in the sound when they arrive is uh, a U.S. destroyer. And she, along with uh, Marine artillery and airplanes from Henderson Field, bombard the Japanese ships and ensure that very little from the supplies that they're carrying makes it to the Japanese troops on the island. And so much of this is a race against time, isn't it? It's a race against the operability of Henderson Field. That they're, The Japanese are trying to shut that thing down before it really gets up and running full force. Because like you say, once that that's up and running, it's pretty much the kiss of death for any attempt to keep the transports flowing to supply their troops on the island. It, it is a race in several ways, time and also a race with supplies. Uh, so who can sustain their forces on the island? Who can make sure that there's enough ammunition? Who can make sure that they've got enough food? Who can make sure that there are enough um, soldiers and Marines to fight? And... It's a race that ultimately the Japanese lose. And this is part of the reason, right? They can't keep Henderson Field down. So it becomes very difficult for them to get the kinds of supplies to the island that they need. Uh, and then that means that even though they've put a large number of uh, soldiers on the island, they suffer from uh, tropical diseases they, and malnutrition and uh, lack of ammunition. And so they're not nearly as capable in terms of you know, their fighting strength uh, as might be uh, just given their numbers. So when was the original invasion of Guadalcanal? It was earlier in 1942. 7 August. 7 August was the first landing on, on Guadalcanal? For Allied forces, yes. Okay, yeah. yeah. So because I think a lot of us sort of view this as like one and done. So then we won that and we moved on to... Tarawa, and then we moved on to Iwo Jima, and we moved on to, you know, that's sort of the facile reading of the island hopping. But this shows that, you know, just because you won the initial invasion or you moved inland, your struggle wasn't done. Like you're saying, even after we thought Henderson Field was a done deal, it was not. Absolutely. And I think that's important uh, context to have. So thank you, Ward. The There was an assumption, you know, so it, Turner becomes the amphibious force commander in the South Pacific. He had developed a war plan uh, that this more or less is the implementation of, or at least the implementation of its first stage. And in conferences before the initial assault, he thought, well, we can occupy uh, Wallachanals and seize the airfield there. It'll be operational in three weeks, and then we can advance. And, and a lot of the plans were based on this assumption, right? This is one of the reasons the Marines are used. They're the assault forces. The assumption was an Army garrison force would show up, allow the Marines to leave Guadalcanal, and then they could be used for the next leap. And you just advance up the Solomons and eventually get back to Rabaul on the island of New Britain and, and recapture it. Uh, 
and it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. It becomes this drawn out attritional struggle. And one of the things that I think Nimitz deserves a lot of credit for is, is recognizing that. Um, so broader context to this, he sees that the Japanese get focused on the Solomons. And that's why you see so many of these forces there, the, the cruisers and destroyers that Scott and Callahan use, the battleships under Admiral Lee, virtually everything is going to the South Pacific. There's a token force in the North Pacific to try to um, deal with any Japanese forces there. And then there's not a whole lot in the Central Pacific because this is where the fight is. The other thing when you think of Guadalcanal from a Marine point of view, Marine Corps point of view, is the Navy sailing away and leaving them in the lurch. So where does that evolution fit within the five battles here? That is, uh, I, I think there is something to the Marine sensibility, right? Because initially they are pretty much left. Uh, a lot of that happens immediately after the Savo Island defeat. So uh, Turner had hoped to keep the amphibious forces there longer. Uh, but after the destruction of his screening forces, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's not possible. we got to leave. And we're going to leave without everything that we intended to, to uh, offload for the Marines. Uh, so the Marines are there. And, and they are more or less alone for quite a while uh, into the month of September. So about a month and a half, they're basically fending off these Japanese forces. Now there are things that come to the island. You know, they get, they get resupply and some other things. But there's no substantial reinforcement for a while. And this is, uh, you know, higher commands seen as a real problem, right? We need to, the only way we're going to hold Guadalcanal is if we can control the water around it. So there's a defeat. Uh, there are two carrier battles, and the first one is the Eastern Solomons, uh, and that defeats the Japanese attempt to retake the island. Uh, the other one comes later on once Halsey assumes command in October at the Battle of Santa Cruz. But um, it, it, the Marines, I think, justifiably make a bit of a criticism here, but it turns around. It starts to turn around in October. And one of the reasons it turns around is, is Turner is with the Marines. He's inside their perimeter the first night of the Battle of Edsom's Ridge. Right? So he gains a very visceral understanding of how tenuous their position is and how potentially insecure their perimeter is. And so he fights to make sure that more uh, Marine regiments and then Army regiments are moved into the island uh, so that they can hold that position. And then uh, when you, what you see in the battles of, of November, I mean, uh, Scott's battle in October at Cape Esperance is triggered by one of those reinforcement uh, efforts. But then in November, um, you see the Navy you know, showing up and basically sacrificing significant numbers of ships uh, to preserve the Marine position, uh, also now the Army position, at, at Henderson Field. You know, Guadalcanal 1 and Guadalcanal 2 are just knockdown, drag-out fights every bit as uh, visceral as the fight for the ridge, but on, on the water. So we're, the, the U.S. forces are in a much better place by the end of Second Guadalcanal than they were back at Savo Island. There's a fifth battle, however, that kind of seals the deal, uh, Tassafaranga. Why don't you tell us about that? Uh, I'm not sure sealing the deal is quite the right term. Right, that's never the right term when you're talking about Guadalcanal. But it's <laughs> um, the fifth of the five. It Let's is, put it that way. It is the fifth of the five, yes. And and here we see a bit a bit difference. Um, so prior fights, uh, a lot of them, at least the, the, the three just before, Cape Esperance and the two Guadalcanal ones are triggered by a Japanese bombardment attempt. Uh, this one 
is more of a reinforcement effort. This is a Tokyo Express effort. The Japanese are coming with destroyers, and they're going to try to resupply their beleaguered forces on Guadalcanal. Happens at the end of November. And so the U.S. forces are now less committed to uh, defending the island uh, in, su- in, in the same way and more committed to trying to make any of these reinforcement efforts difficult. So the Japanese are coming. We're going to get them. That's the thinking. Uh, and it's a mixed cruiser destroyer task force. It's, it's commanded by um, Admiral Wright. And uh, he hasn't been in command very long doesn't have a really good sense of how his group is going to fight. At least that's the impression that I get from uh, everything that we can see in the record. And uh, instead of the kinds of linear formations that Scott and Callahan employed, he's going to let his destroyers go out and try to make a torpedo attack and keep his cruisers back to use their guns. And hopefully these things, the torpedoes and the guns, will hit the Japanese at the same time overwhelm them and introduce confusion it doesn't work he doesn't allow his uh, destroyers to lose their torpedoes even though they're in position he sort of hesitates he feels like he's got a better sense of uh, the situation than uh, cole his destroyer commander and he and the battle plan too underestimate japanese capabilities right so japanese torpedoes have played an important role in all the fights up to this point but here they really uh, shine a light on their capabilities uh, because what you get ultimately is a showdown between U.S. cruiser gunfire and Japanese torpedoes. And the Japanese torpedoes are superior. Uh, the U.S. cruisers pretty much all target the same destroyer, the one that presents the best radar signature, overwhelm it pretty quickly. But the remaining ones lose a torpedo salvo um, that devastate writes cruiser column uh, and although he only loses one of them all but uh, one of the more maneuverable light cruisers are hit and knocked out for a significant period of time and this kind of ties your signature work learning war to this article which is in learning war you dispel the notion that we were confused and without any sort of tactical focus until December 7th, and then we got our act together in a hurry. What you point out in Learning War is this was the function of, in fact, the Naval Institute plays and Proceedings Magazine plays a key role in this tactical development and this laying the framework for innovation from the late 1800s into through the 1900s. We talk about the insurgents, which is Fisk, Mahan, Sims, and Luce. Lewis is a good one. Yep. And and so, um, and their sort of initiative and pushing the Navy to do more and be innovative. And so that was the framework that allowed us to uh, have this in place, never mind whether the wildcat could keep up with the zero or so forth and so on. But we certainly had the pluck and the spirit of, of innovation. You say here in the last paragraph, the five, ma- the five major battles off Guadalcanal were a test of U.S. and Japanese tactics and doctrine. Although many of the battles were tactical defeats for the U.S. Navy, its forces triumphed in the campaign because of their ability to thwart Japanese strategic designs. And this is, this is the key sentence. That ability rested on pre-war, pre-war tactical principles emphasizing aggressiveness and individual initiative, right? That's something that naval officers pride themselves on to this day. 
Um, and so that that's key, right? I mean, that's a very important uh, part of what we were doing at this time. Yes, absolutely. Um, and thanks for bringing up learning war because in it, I make the point that a lot of the pre-war assumptions about how night battles like this were going to get fought uh, are rendered uh, or, or they, they, they are shown to be false. Right. The, the way one of the assumptions that the, the Navy went into the war ha- having was we'll have cohesive formations. So we will be able to train and then fight in more or less the same way. And what happens off Guadalcanal is that you can't do that because now we have a war that is global. We've got to fight in the Atlantic. We've got to fight in the Pacific. And we have to shuttle ships around very rapidly. So almost all these forces that fight off Guadalcanal are uh, what they called scratch teams. You know, they didn't have a lot of time to prepare or practice together. And, and they used that, they used that term at, at the time. And they know, they know that this is making them less effective. They know at least to formations that aren't very cohesive. And so things break down. But what you see in these battles, like the aggressiveness and individual initiative, you see that, you know, among people on individual ships, you know, whether they're you know, using the guns and local control to try to keep fighting even after the centralized control has broken down or if they're doing it, um, you know, at their at their ship level. Like, OK, I, <laughs> I mean, the only U.S. ship that I can see, let me go find a target. Let me go find someone else to shoot at um, because it's important to, to come out of this alive and in, uh, in better shape than we went into the battle in. Um, and that is just – now, that is not to say that the Japanese weren't aggressive. Absolutely, they are too. Uh, but there's a thread here um, with the U.S. Navy that you see through pre-war approaches into these fights that I think is very important. And then the last sentence is victory in the inferno of Iron Bottom Sound. At what point did they call it Iron Bottom Sound? It wasn't called Iron Bottom Sound at the beginning because it, it hadn't been created yet. Right? No. Well, no. what's it's, its real name? Savo Sound. Okay. So at some point in there, it gets the nickname because shipping is going to the bottom. But you say it allowed Halsey to win the campaign and Nimitz to seize the initiative in the Pacific. That's the bottom line to Eric's original question, which is what did this set the stage for? And there it is right there. Yeah. Yeah. There it is. Uh, and like I was alluding to earlier, Nimitz recognizes that. He knows that this is where the Japanese have chosen to pour their resources. Uh, and so if they can be defeated there, then he can have more strategic flexibility going forward. And so he, he commits things to win. Part of that um, U.S. naval spirit of the war, which is so uplifting to people reading about it now, I think is that, uh, for lack of a better word, sort of scrappy determinedness. And I think these battles kind of exemplify that. They're sloppy, but they turn out the way, you know, a win is a win. And um Tasa Faranga, the last one, yes, as you describe, it's kind of a, a messed up uh, deal there tactically, but none of the uh, Japanese material makes it to the Japanese troops on Guadalcanal. So in that sense, we did what we achieved, we set out to do. Yes. We stopped the supplies from arriving. Yes, and thanks for pointing that out. Absolutely. Uh, so it was successful in, in that sense. It, it costs uh, cruisers and lives, but it, it succeeds at that uh, operational level and that's that's quite important so the article is guadalcanal quintet the author is our good friend trent hone in the october issue of naval history magazine it is the cover article trent as always thanks for coming by the proceedings podcast today yeah thanks for having me it's great to be here great to see you trent 
Thanks much. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again very soon.